0: Thanks Kirk. Thank you for your warm welcome. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here again. I think the last time I was here was probably two years ago uh, when I stood at this excellent pulpit. pulpit, I'm a Bible guy so uh, I like a pulpit that uh, rests on the word of God. When I reflected uh, about what I might talk about today, I thought since Sockham is kicking off this week, and I commend the program to you, uh, we kicked off our second class um, last Sunday. Uh, we had a prophetic word um, from a new guy in our church, but an old friend came and said, uh, he prophesied to us about local flooding in Bonnerig, which is where we meet. Uh, and so the rain started on Friday night, all day Saturday, Saturday night, all day Sunday. So the time we got to the hall for our first class, we were walking through ankle deep water to get into our uh, little building uh, and we had a fun time. And those of you who've signed up for uh, the School of Kingdom Ministry, well done and stick with it. It's is something that you are making an investment in your future as a follower of Jesus. And the goal of the School of Kingdom Ministry is to change your life. That's one of the reasons why the experience is so intense. It needs to be intense. You don't get to change your life half an hour a week. And you don't get to change your life just by reading some stuff or watching some videos You need to get the teaching, but you also need to uh, get the skills that go with the teaching and then practice until you get good at it. So since the School of Kingdom Ministry launches today, I thought I'd talk about power and how you get it. So the power of God, I believe, is on the increase in Vineyard Australia. So, since uh, Putty first delivered his prophecy here in this room uh, two septembers ago, uh, declaring that the season of pruning is over and a time of fruitfulness has come, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a gradual increase in the tide of spiritual life and the presence and the power of God among his people. And as vineyard people, that's what we're about. What we're looking for. Is for God's mercy to be poured out through power. Power to change people's lives, power to restore people's marriages, power to heal people's broken bodies and souls. And so the good thing about the School of Kingdom Ministry is that this is a very practical way for you to be trained in how to do it. You can actually learn. To operate in the power of God. So I'd like you to turn your uh, in your Bibles to the Book of Philippians. Now, Philippians has always been one of my favourite books. I have lots of favourite books in the Bibles. Bible. Now I want you to turn to Philippians chapter three. We're going to read the first eleven verses. Now. The text that I want to focus on today is kind of a life text for me. New Year's Day in 1980, I was 20 years old. Uh, It was a Sunday and I went to the Little Baptist Church that I was a part of back in those days. And the pastor of the church preached on Philippians 3.10 that I might know him. And the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that I too might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Or something like that. I don't remember anything that the pastor said, but this scripture was burned into my soul. It's been the thing that I've gone after every day since that I might know Jesus as King. So to put that text in context, I want to read from verse 1. And then we're going to talk about how we go about getting the power of his resurrection in our life. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I'm reading the ESV. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. Watch out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh as well. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul here is opening up his heart to his friends. Paul had a special friendship with the church at Philippi. And the reason this letter exists is because Paul was in prison and the Philippian church were supporting him. So the, the pastor of the church, a guy named Epaphroditus, had travelled with a gift, a financial gift and probably a, a care package as well, to give to Paul in prison. And so Paul wrote this letter while Epaphroditus was with him to carry back to the church to say thank you. Though if you read through the whole letter, he never actually gets around to actually saying thank you. But that's the reason this letter exists. And he's defending why it is that he's in prison for the gospel, and he's opening up his heart to this church who are his friends who love him and support him. And so it's a very warm, personal, friendly letter, and then in the middle, seemingly out of step with the rest of the verse, especially if you read verse 3 verse 1 and then skip over, he says the same thing in 4, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 4 verse 1. There's this sudden warning, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evildoers, watch out for the, the mutilators of the flesh. In Greek, it's a lot more impressive because it's all alliterate, alliteration. It's watch out for the kunas, the kakos, uh, the katatome. The so it's very stark and strong in Greek. And he's putting the boot in to these guys. Who are the dogs? Dogs was a term of abuse that strict Jewish believers used of the Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't have the Jewish law and didn't uh, keep the food laws, and so they considered them to be unclean. Dogs were not pets in the days of the Roman Empire. A dog was a despised creature. They were wild dogs, not pet dogs. So you've got to lose any idea that Paul's saying, oh, my faithful friend, when he says watch out for the dogs. That's not what he's getting at at all. Paul is talking about a group of Jewish people that troubled him his whole life. These Jewish Christians, that's who he's calling dogs and evil workers and mutilators of the flesh. That third one, katatome, is is a play on the word circumcision. See, these Jewish believers were going around when Paul was preaching his message of freedom in Christ, right? saying you no longer have to observe the Jewish law to come into a right relationship with God. If you want to come into a right relationship with God, all you need to do is put your confidence in the faithfulness of Jesus who has done everything for you. That's what Paul's message was. These Jewish believers, whether they're Christians or not, we don't really know. Paul certainly had a very low opinion of them. They would follow Paul around and every time he finished up in a town and planted a church, they would move in after him and say, well, Paul told you some of the truth, but the real truth is that to be accepted by God, you have to obey the law. You have to keep the Sabbath. You have to get circumcised. You have to observe the food laws that set Jewish people apart from the Gentiles. This is who Paul is warning the Philippians about. Philippi was on a major highway and he knew from experience that after he moved on, before too long, these guys would come in and try to steal away his converts from Christ, so Paul goes on and he says, "I don't want you to think that this is sour grapes—that I'm uh, saying you don't have to worry about all this law stuff because I'm a loser." He says, "In actual fact, if you want to play the Jewish cards, I've got a better hand than anyone." And he goes through and he lists his Jewish credentials circumcised on the eighth day of the people. That means that his family were a strict religious Jewish family. The law said that a male child must be circumcised one week after birth. That's the eighth day. What tribe does he belong to? He belongs to the prestigious tribe of Benjamin. The tribe that gave Israel their first king, Saul, and that remained faithful to David when all of the other tribes uh, split away. Not any tribe. What about his training? A Pharisee. So in other words, he's been to the best university in learning the Jewish law. As to his accomplishments... I persecuted those Christians, scumbags, leading people away from the true faith, keeping the law. He's no longer that proud of that bit. So Paul lists his credentials and says, when it comes to boasting about my family heritage, about my qualifications, about my accomplishments, I can come to God, put my hand up and say, I've got it all. I can stand proudly in God's presence. Under Jewish law, Paul's status was blameless. Now, he's not claiming there to be without sin. He's saying that under the category of keeping the Jewish law, he observed the law faithfully and had done so all of his life. And Paul turns around, all of that, these were my credentials. I grew up and I was one of the stars. He studied under one of the great Jewish rabbis. And so Paul had the best credentials in the room, much better credentials than these bozos who were coming around and causing trouble in his churches. And Paul says, you know what? I'd taken all of these credentials, my family heritage, my training, my accomplishments, and I pushed them all to one side, and I now consider them to be in the loss column. The only thing that I want in the credit column is to know Christ. Paul says that it doesn't matter what your family heritage is. It doesn't matter what your training or your qualifications are. It doesn't matter what your accomplishments are. The only thing that counts is knowing Christ, knowing Jesus as your King. Now this can go in two directions. My story is quite similar to Paul. I grew up in a, uh, a devout Christian family My parents both loved the Lord and served the Lord faithfully all of my life. My dad died uh, five or six years ago. My mum's still uh, around. They formed me in the faith. And not only that, but my family was a missionary family. So when I was growing up, I had three sets of aunties and uncles who were serving God as missionaries in the Philippines, in Thailand, in Taiwan. So in terms of the real deal type of Christianity, that was me. I loved my church. I loved the Bible. I grew up Baptist. That's why I like these things. And so I can cite lots of scripture that I learned. I started reading the Bible when I was eight years old and have read the Bible pretty much every day of my life since then. And not just reading it, but learning it and studying it and meditating on it. My Christian credentials are pretty good. I've worked hard in the church. Before we got married, I was a deacon of the church in my mid-twenties. I was the general superintendent of the Sunday school. Uh, I was the youth leader. I coordinated the small groups. Uh, it's like there was nobody else in this church that did anything. Um, like I'm doing the whole lot. And I came to a place where I looked around and thought, I'm doing all this stuff, but I don't really feel like I know God that well. And I don't really have any friends because I'm too busy doing this, all this church stuff. And so I set out on a quest. Paul got disturbed when he was on his mission persecuting the church. God knocked him off his horse and gave him an open vision of the risen Jesus standing saying, Paul, what are you doing, mate? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul has this sudden uh, revelation He's a Pharisee. He believes in the resurrection, but he believes that the resurrection belongs to the next age. So when Paul recognises that this man standing in his vision is the risen Jesus of Nazareth, suddenly Paul's whole world changes because he thinks resurrection If there's a resurrection, that means that this present age is done and the new age of God's spirit has dawned. That means new creation is here. That means that all of God's promises that we've been praying for centuries, they've now come, they're now here. And Paul's life changes in a moment. Well actually if you read the text of Acts carefully you'll see that Paul disappears from the story for about a decade. Paul's life changes in a moment and then he goes off into the wilderness and it takes him 10 years to work out what does it mean that the age to come has arrived. What does it mean that the king is here And that God's raised him from the dead. So Paul says, all of my credentials, I throw them aside because all I want is to know Jesus the King. He actually uses a really rude word. The rudest word in the Bible is in this passage. Uh, I'm not going to say it in English because it really is a rude word. But he says, all of those things that I thought were good, they're like something that you'd step on in the street and you don't want to get it on your shoes. Something that's left behind by the dogs. And he doesn't use a polite biological term. He uses the rude one right in the middle of the Bible. One of the advantages of studying the Bible is that when you get into the different bits of the text, you'll find that there are lots of places where the English translators have actually cleaned it up a bit. The Hebrew and the Greek are sometimes a lot uh, saucier, a lot ruder than comes across in our nice English translations of the Bible. Paul says, all I want is to know Jesus the king he lines up on one side what he calls the righteousness of works righteousness under the law these are all of the things that I did to prove to God that I'm good enough and maybe you've been doing that as well Maybe you've got sucked into religious performance thinking that salvation will come to you, that God's acceptance will come to you if you do the right things. There are some people who think that they're right with God because their parents are right with God. But God has no grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters and he calls each of us into a personal relationship with him. And God's goal for you is to have a close relationship with him. Now, I'm not saying here that you shouldn't work hard in the church. I'm not saying here that you shouldn't live a a holy, godly life. But we don't do that in order To make ourselves righteous before God. It doesn't matter if you're the best person in the room or the biggest scumbag in the room. We are all accepted by God on the same basis. That is, we are made righteous before God on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus. And if you were reading your Bible carefully, you'll notice that there was one bit there where I changed the word that's usually translated in the English scriptures, uh, righteousness by faith. Um, I agree with uh, English scholar N.T. Wright that we've been translating that particular word wrong for five centuries and it shouldn't be translated faith, it should be translated faithfulness. And it's not my faithfulness, it's the faithfulness of Jesus. The thing that makes me right with God is the fact that I have a faithful king who's done everything that was required for me to be made right with God. And so we come to God as we are, whether we are good highly religious people or whether we totally messed up and broken. If you take some time getting to know the good religious people you'll discover that they're still totally messed up and broken. It's just that they tend not to admit it to themselves. I know that because that was me. It's not until we come to a point of accepting that we cannot come to God on the basis of what we've done or who our family is. We can only come to God on the basis of what he has done for us through Jesus. Then he accepts us and calls us sons and daughters. So if you've struggled with guilt or performance or felt that you're never going to be able to measure up? You're absolutely right. You won't ever measure up. The good news is that you don't need to. <clears throat> you only need to come to God and plead the faithfulness of Jesus and he will accept you. And not only will he accept you, but he'll begin to pour his power Into your life. See, Paul concludes this passage by saying, My goal is that I may know him. His only goal is to know Jesus as King. But there's two sides to knowing Jesus, and we need to get to know both of these aspects of relationship with Jesus. In the Greek, they're tied together by a single article so that it's not in Paul's mind that these are two different things. It's like these are the two sides of the same coin. Now, most of us are keen to be able to move in God's power. Is there anyone here who doesn't want more manifest power of God in their life? I've been doing this a while now and what I want is more. But we don't get the more power without the second bit. See, the power that God puts into our life, Paul says in Ephesians 1.19, which uh, which Kirk read this morning, it's the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead. It's all of the resources of heaven put at our disposal because we've come into God's family. But when does God give us his power? It's as we enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. This is not as popular Those of you who've been around for as long as I have or longer, you'll know that you don't need to seek the sufferings of Jesus. Suffering comes. Trouble comes to all of us. So Paul is not saying here, go out and seek the sufferings of Jesus. He's not saying go out and flagellate yourself, that's use whips. He's not saying, uh, put yourself in a position where people can pile on and treat you really badly. Trust me, if you follow Jesus long enough, that will happen all by itself. The key here is not to seek the sufferings of Jesus. The key is that when trouble comes, we allow trouble to shape us into the character of Jesus. Who does God trust with his power? God gives his power to people who are being conformed into his death. And so Paul is saying here, you don't come to God on the basis of a transformed life. But if you come to God, your life will be transformed your life will be transformed as the power of the resurrection comes into your life and starts to change you and then when suffering comes, instead of reacting in bitterness, in anger, in rage, in hate, in all of the negative, we walk the path of suffering in the same way that our king walked the path of suffering. So if you read the whole of Philippians, you'll know the wonderful passage about Jesus in Philippians 2. And Paul tells his story here in an exact mirror image of the way he told Jesus' story in chapter 2, because that's the point that's making, that to know Jesus my King, I have to walk his path. I have to learn to live my life the way he lived his life. I have to take on his character and allow his power to transform my life in the midst of suffering. So I want to invite you this morning to come on this journey to come on this journey to know Jesus better to know Jesus as your king to seek and welcome the power of the resurrection but allow allowing suffering and trouble to shape your life and mold you into a person who is just like Jesus So there are some of you here who have been struggling with that whole performance thing. You've been thinking that you've got to live in a certain way to measure up to God. Well, I have good news. There's mercy here today and for the rest of your life. You don't need to do that. You can lay down all of your works, good or bad and come to God on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus. There are also some here this morning who are really seeking to walk in more power. And this is a holy pursuit. But this morning I'm bringing you a warning I'm saying pursue the power of the Holy Spirit, but understand that the power of the Holy Spirit comes via the path of suffering. That as God pours his resurrection life into us, we learn to suffer with Jesus. Trouble will come. Now you can run away from power, trouble will still come. So you might as well go this way. If you would like to receive the power of the resurrection in greater measure this morning, I'd invite you to stand where you are. And we'll pray for the power given, the giver, to come to us. He is a generous Father. He loves you more than you know. And He, he has a, feature, a future more glorious than anything that you could ask or imagine. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. And we invite you to come and lead us into a closer relationship with Jesus, our King. Now as you stand here in the presence of your King, I invite you to hold out in your hands all of your works. All of the things that you might boast to others about, that you might feel good about yourself because you did this. I want you to offer those things to the king in exchange for the faithfulness of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, King, that you have done all that we need, that you possess all that we need. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll begin to come and rest on each one that you'll come with the grace and mercy of the king. And God, I pray that you'll come with a deeper intimacy with Jesus. There's no need to fear that the path of suffering will be more than you can bear because the king will be with you every step. That's how it works. Come, Lord. Come, Lord.